welcome to episode 232 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 5th of June 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello, everyone. Phelan, you uh, are so excited by the Apple event that uh, you've lost your voice and uh, lost all your energy. I have, yeah. It's the, the man flu has taken me. It was from the excitement my immune system gave up. Yeah. It was the thought of those fake eyes on the front of my VR goggles. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, as we record, we still don't know how much it is, so we're going to assume it's £100,000 for the headset. Tis a bargain. <laughs> Before we get started, I want to plug Ask the Hosts, which is a new show to the Late Night Linux family. As the name suggests, you get to ask us any questions you want, but they can't be about Linux. Now, the bottom line is, this is a show for patrons. And so, if you're on Patreon, you get this show first. If you're not a patron, you have to wait two weeks to get it in the public feeds. The idea is that it's going to be me and a random selection of hosts from the various Late Night Linux family shows. And you submit your questions, show at askthehost.com is the email, and then we will answer some of those questions. The first episode is already available to patrons, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It won't be too long. I think it'll be next week when it comes out to everyone else. And in that first episode, it was me, Popey from Linux Matters, and Gary from Linux After Dark. And we were talking about traveling and all sorts of stuff. So become a patron, support the shows, and uh, get that as a bonus before everyone else. Let's do some news then. Now, there were a few things that happened since we last recorded a few weeks ago that all kind of lump together into a bigger story, I think. Ubuntu plans to switch the CUPS printing stack to Snap, and all Snap Ubuntu desktop will be available next year, and Red Hat are going to stop shipping RPMs of LibreOffice in future RHEL and Fedora, etc. This is all pointing to a future or present where you have an immutable distro and you have sandbox apps on top of that, either Snap or Flatpak. Now, Phelim, you have already telepathically told the audience what you think about this. <laughs> so I'm more interested in what... Will and Graham have to say about this. Graham, you are a bit closer to this than most. Did you know about this AllSnap desktop before it was uh, sort of leaked out? I don't think you had to look too closely to see the way that things were going, especially if you follow any kind of Snap or Ubuntu core development. And I am definitely not an official spokesperson for Canonical or Ubuntu core or Snaps or any of that. I do work on the SnapD team. So I've... Even outside of Canonical, I suppose I wouldn't have been surprised that this was something on the cards. But, you know, I'm not on the desktop team. I don't have any deep insights on what the a Snap Ubuntu desktop will be. But I'm fairly sure it, there won't be any kind of immediate plan or even medium-term plan to replace traditional Ubuntu desktops. I imagine this will be an alternative offering for people who want the advantages of an immutable read-only Ubuntu core with desktop applications, which you can kind of hack together from your own snaps right now. And I guess it'll make it more convenient for those users of Ubuntu core who do want some kind of desktop apps, rather than, this is my personal opinion, I don't know, but rather than replacing the traditional Ubuntu distribution, which I can't see being replaced. I think it would be a, a bad idea. I think long term it will be replaced, but I think for at least the next two or three LTSs, it, it will be side by side. Speaking like outside the canonical box, I think it would have to prove itself. 
I think it would have to prove to be just as reliable and all of those problems that people complain about ironed out and it provides a better experience for people because a lot of it is to do with the maintenance burden of updating packages for lots of different versions of Ubuntu and their dependencies. And that's what these rolling updates and in-place updates solve, as well as containerization and knowing that things aren't doing things they're not supposed to. Yeah, I think it's important to separate the two ideas here. They are linked, but they are two separate things. You've got the immutable desktops on the one hand, and then you've got the containerized applications on the other. And I think the containerized applications are not even the future, they are the present. I'm sure loads of our listeners are using Flatpaks for maybe even the majority of the software they're running these days. Or Snaps, maybe. I don't want people to think that I'm talking on behalf of Canonical because I use, I use, you know, I, I still use Arch as my main distro. <laughs> <laughs> Which is worse? If, is he a shill for Arch or a shill for Canonical? <laughs> what I just want to say is I use Flatpaks, I use Snaps, I use all kinds of packaging still daily. And I get it. There are distinct advantages to using containerized apps, especially with things that have a, a server component, um, which I might talk about in Finds of the Fortnight next episode. You know, something like Home Assistant and a Snap, I have full control over. I don't have to worry about its configuration so much. And it's the same for desktop apps. And yes, and that's separate to having read-only or immutable distros. But with, in the case, it's just a different way of thinking about the file system because it's not entirely read-only because it's important, of course, that you have access to your own documents and your own home folder. So in my mind, it's a different way of thinking about storage and not perhaps having to worry about the traditional Unix layout that we've all been used to for you know decades. Will, you're pretty down on this whole future idea, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm an old man stuck in my ways. We we talked about the the idea of a containerized or snap-only desktop back when I was there, and I was actively against the idea because I personally do not see the need. And in fact, I think it actually works against my own interests in being able to get in there and fiddle about to my heart's content. What it would do, though, is save me from hours of breaking something and then having to fix it because I installed a bad package and it overwrote something that I needed. And that problem is real, but I think it's also extremely rare. And I think that the one of the arguments for the all-snap desktop or the containerized desktop is that it will save you from upgrades that go wrong and you'll be able to easily roll back to the previous version and one thing won't interfere with another. And that's a valid use case. I just don't think it's a very common problem. I, when was the last time a straightforward apt get upgrade actually hosed your system like honestly speaking i don't know when it was maybe five seven years ago a long time ago it's been stable and uh it, it works and um that's the way i liked it one thing i do like about snaps um i oh god i hate getting into this conversation but in answer to what you're saying will is that you can have all of your application and service settings saved with the snap as a snapshot of the snap i'm just using snaps for example at that point of time and i found that really useful mm. so as you migrate to a new version you've got a configuration file for the new version but also for the previous version and and, and that's local to the containerized application which i think is really powerful than having them in config files that you may which i sync to github yeah i absolutely see the worth of the concept i like i totally get it and i'm on board with it a good example of this home assistant recently uh well recently maybe four or five months ago 
dropped support for Python 3.9, and Python 3.9 is what comes with the Raspberry Pi. So if you want to upgrade to anything in the last sort of five months, you have to upgrade the version of Python on the Raspberry Pi. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be responsible for compiling and maintaining a specific version of Python on their Raspberry Pi just for one application. It's risky, and you'll end up breaking something else. In that situation, something like in the case of Home Assistant, a Docker container, but equally a Snap or a flat pack where all of the config and all of the dependencies are in that lump and you can just pick it up and move it around and do whatever you want with it. Great, I get that. But that's a sort of different use case in my mind to a desktop. And I know it shouldn't be, and I need to get over this and get on board with it, but I no, just, I'm not there yet. I'm not <laughs> nowhere near willing to adopt it yet. And so for Ubuntu to say... Well, not actually say, but for Ubuntu to start down this road, I think, as Joe was saying, it will be alongside for for years. I think it's got a lot of work to do to prove to Hmm. us old boys that like things the way that they were, that it's safe and that they still can do all of the stupid hacky things that they like doing, and it will be okay. That's going to take a long time. This whole thing just gives me flashbacks to when I first got into podcasting about Linux. There was a hot technical topic back then, and there was people arguing over it and writing blog posts and replies to blog posts, much like we're going to have linked in the show notes here. And that topic was System Day. <laughs> and that was just inevitable. And it feels to me very similar. Mm. There's a strong parallels here that it doesn't matter whether you like this new approach or not. It's happening. It's already here for a lot of people, and it is definitely the future. And so there's no point fighting it, ultimately. You know, and they will, this is Linux, this is open source, there will be the equivalent of Dev1, but mainstream distros will all be like this within 10 years, probably. Maybe even sooner. I think you're probably right. It's a different mindset, as you were saying earlier on, The containerized desktop is much more suited to a consumerist device where you just get on, install the applications, and use the applications. For that use case, it's perfect. I see a lot of value in it. I don't know that Linux desktops are that use case. I know everybody wants it to be, but I just don't think it ever will be. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Now, Phelan, keep in mind that we have recorded a conversation with you and George Castro about this for Linux Downtime, which will be coming out at some point soon. So try not to just repeat all of the usual shit. No, I'm not going to. But what I was going to say was, while we've been going, well, what, Will made a very good point, the fact that he doesn't think that use case where it's someone breaking their machine when they've installed something. Well, I'll give you a contra example to that is I was trying to use a piece of hardware, which in next week's discovery I'll be talking about, and I could not get it to work because the Steam Flatpak was fucking around with UDEV. And it was a pain in the arse and it works straight away on my machine that I've had Steam installed as the, you know, the Steam installer package. That was the original way of doing it. I've had that for ages on this machine. That worked like a charm. The flat pack, something's going on there. I don't know what it is. I don't have a solution for it. So write in and help me at some point. I will ask for that help next week. But that was really annoying because we have now literally got to the point where we have a working gaming system and now what hey let's go break all that again in typical open source fashion great cheers lads yes much like how i had problems with the next cloud server snap and how that 
wouldn't talk to external storage by default. I, I didn't stick with it long enough to work out that, Graham, I'm sure you have got documentation you can link me to that shows how to have it talk to external storage. But if it wasn't at least on the local file system, if not in your home directory, then it couldn't write to it, which was useless to me. It was booted off a Pi on a uh, small SD card and I had a huge hard drive attached to it that it just wouldn't talk to by default. And like I said, there's easy ways around that, but they're just new things that you have to learn. It's not just sticking a line in your FS tab and getting your permission sorted the old school way. And that's the point. One problem I have with that, right, that file share stuff. So the snap, I, I logged this with Will, he said there was no fix for it at the time. The snap for LibreOffice won't open a remote Samba share mm. in the file dialog. That is how every office worker opens files in a company. And that doesn't work because it is outside of your home directory and it's just the snap is not allowed to do that. So with now Red Hat also shedding support and people going, oh, just get a flat pack of LibreOffice. It's going to be great. Well, is that going to face the same issue where we all have to, what, copy files off a server to our home directory so we can open them and then all copy them back and have all the merge conflicts? Great. It's a great future we have. No, just email them back and forth to each other. Yeah. I think you've unearthed a problem, a real problem there, Joe, when you talk about people wanting to noodle with their FUSTAB files. We talked a few weeks ago about the general population of Linux getting older and older and not attracting young blood. That's true, right? This is the situation we find ourselves in. A lot of people who use Linux today have used it for a long time and you know they're stuck in their ways. I think that is the biggest problem that needs to be overcome. Another thing... As well, and I think this is in response to what Phelan was saying. I think it's, I don't want to do next week's show either, but I think it's Steam VR. And Steam VR is an absolute shit show on Linux, however you install it. <laughs> yes, it is. And one thing that both reorganizing packages around Flatpak or Snap or whatever it happens to be, it makes developers think about the target package rather than it just being this complete mad tarball and a load of random dependencies, which Steam VR is from Valve. So it takes time, and we, this is the chicken and egg situation. And I think that's another benefit of at least going this way or standardizing on something that we have to agree is going to be the next generation of packaging. But I, I do feel like the advantages have to become self-evident. They're self-evident, I think, to the people who support these. And maybe this is why Red Hat's made the decision in the, the number of people hours it takes to maintain the LibreOffice packages. It works for maybe companies like Canonical and Red Hat, but we really need it to work for users and users to get behind this and understand that there are distinct advantages that they feel rather than just being told to feel. That reminds me of the whole idea of free and open source software in the first place, that proprietary software is there for the benefit of the developer and the company making it, whereas free and open source software is for the benefit of the user. And I'm not trying to say that it's it's proprietary and evil or whatever, but it just there does seem to be a parallel there somehow. Related to that, I had a thought about the conversations we were having a, a couple of episodes ago about the advantage, what we were worried about in open source. And I know a few people who work at law firms and banks and big medicinal companies. I don't they I don't know why they're parents of children, but my <laughs> children know. <laughs> but what I was going to say is a lot of them have talked about open source. And they're talking about open source in that very corporate sense without any understanding of the freedom side of it. And 
that worries me as well. I, I was thinking that was another worry. And this is, we've got a bit of that balancing problem here. I worry that open source has been has escaped, but the idea behind free software hasn't. Well, George Castro's post about this, the distribution model is changing, is interesting because he makes the point that the desktop is now starting to go in a similar direction to where the cloud went. And that the only way the desktop is going to be successful is if it sort of apes that cloud model. And we've seen how successful the cloud is. And I think it's a reasonable argument, but at the same time, it's kind of what you said, Graham. It's it's very much the sort of open source side of it rather than the free software side of it. And I think I talked about this ages ago, that we're starting to see a split between cloud people and Linux people. And clearly, Phelan, you are a Linux person, and clearly, George is a cloud person. And I think it's just a different mindset that almost parallels with the open source versus free software people. I think, though, the cloud is very much big corporate players, and I don't want us to be in that situation either. I think I like the fact that users have the power on their own systems. So I'd worry that we end up in a case where you don't really even own your FOSS operating system because you don't have the blessed keys to install things and stuff like that. So I just hope we don't shoot ourselves in the foot because while it might be great to get new people in, what's the point in getting new people in if we then produce just another MacOS or something like that? There's no point to that. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, The user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash late night Linux to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of just this show or all the Late Night Linux family shows. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops and servers and most parts are configurable so you can pick the CPU, RAM and storage that's right for you. If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy and Spain And if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop down at checkout and you can select late night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Exciting, maybe Linux news, the Ableton Push 3, is it? The the latest version of their hardware device, interface, whatever you want to call it, MIDI controller. There is... 
the standard one that you need a computer with, but now there's a standalone one which you can swap out a module to have uh, basically a computer in it. I think it comes with an i5, a standard, or an i3. Anyway, there are strong rumors and speculation that this thing is running Linux. And Graham, you brought this to our attention. Yeah, we haven't got any kind of first-party reports on it running Linux. But, I mean, Ableton, for people that don't know, is probably the most popular electronic music DJ production tool that's being used by musicians and people out there. It's a hugely successful product that, at the time, revolutionized, when it first came out in the early 2000s, revolutionized the way that music is made from clips and loops and scenes. Um, Lots and lots of people use it. And some of the... Employees of Ableton left the company and created Bitwig, which is the closest competitor to Ableton, and Bitwig runs on Linux. It's a great application. Um, Ableton has never run on Linux. It just runs on Windows and Mac OS. So by creating this Push 3 device, which is a controller to access all the functions of Ableton and a Nook, essentially, running inside, running Ableton, and that includes the built-in effects. It includes all of the instruments, the synthesizers that it comes with. All of this presumably has been ported to Linux so they can put it on this little embedded device and and get it running as a standalone piece of hardware. And we don't know what that means for whether there will be a Linux version, but I think it's a bit like the Steam Deck. It's a really exciting development. Yeah, I was going to say, this feels like the Steam Deck moment for audio. Yeah, because if it is Linux, and I'm sure it is, it means if third-party effects and instrument developers want to create plugins for this, and they will, they're going to have to create Linux versions. So that will open up, if, if there, even if there isn't a version of Ableton for Linux, it'll mean that we'll get all the first party synths and instruments that everybody relies on, and which is exciting as well. I mean, for a lot of them, it won't be that hard because things like VST, you can already build for Linux if you choose to do so. But it kind of forces them to do that in the same way, you know, Proton compatibility has forced games developers to see whether things run on the Steam Deck. It'd be funny if it was just running Windows 7 or something <laughs> underneath. Windows CE. Yeah. Oh, it can't be. It, 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 maybe it's running Proton. You know, that's, it, they, maybe they've hacked together something like that. But I don't know. I'd love, I, I, they're expensive. So I think even the controller without the PC in the UK is like £850. Um, and with the PC, it's like £1,000 more than that. I've got a Push 1. I'd love to upgrade it, but it's a lot of money for what it is. Are those instruments their own thing as well, or are they a standard? Yeah, they're they're, they're embedded. They're part of the application, so they only run right. within the Ableton environment. Uh, they're not like something you can run on other apps. But the beauty of this standalone thing is you don't need a computer. It's got the computer inside it. You can just make music completely with it. And you reckon it's Linux. I mean, I've seen some speculation on Reddit as well that it's Linux inside there. So it seems like the obvious choice for an embedded device, but then... Why would they not release Ableton for Linux if they're already having to support it for their own? Well, I suppose it's the same uh, problem as usual, isn't it? That there's no such thing as for Linux. Yeah, and I hate referring to random comments on Hacker News, but somebody who claimed to work for an audio platform that pushes the Linux version made a comment that we've heard it before, that they support Linux, they get 75% of their support requests and only 5% of their revenue through Linux. And I imagine it's just something that Ableton doesn't see a return on. They may be happy to create a version of Ableton that runs on their own customized Linux 
but they don't em- envisage making it more widely available. I don't know what that means if you get access to the drives. You can do. It's just a normal drive on top of that nook. Um, I'd love for some hacker to... You wouldn't even take much hacking, I don't think, <laughs> to take this apart and see what's actually running. And I, I had hoped somebody would do that before our podcast so that we could have more of a story. Well, we're going to have to keep an eye on that one, I think. And hopefully it could be very good news long term. Willow could be the $50 hardware piece of the DIY voice assistant puzzle. So this is a little screen thing that has got an ESP32 in it. So, Will, you should be literally an expert on this. And it syncs up with Home Assistant and their voice assistant thing that they're working on. And uh, it's supposed to not just work with Home Assistant, but that's kind of the, the first target for it. So do we think that there's any uh, future in this? I don't think there's a proprietary future in any of the Home Assistants because they all seem to be tanking with spectacular fashion. I can't imagine they're going to last much longer unless they see it as a lost leader. But I think we've well seen that nobody is going to be buying a car from Amazon using Amazon's Alexa. Oh, please have me a car there. You know, uh, so it'd be nice if Home Assistant could get this type of feature with something that was a bit better looking, as they say, than a pie with a pie hat on top and a couple yeah. of flaky microphones about the place. It would be nice to have a unit. Now, I don't know if the ESP32 is much use for this, but maybe. I'm surprised it's got enough poke to work, but apparently it has. The The ESP box is like an off-the-shelf display and microprocessor and uh, a, a reasonably nice-looking case in one that you can buy off the shelf. And at $50, I think that the price point is keen. I, I think you could probably pick up a an Amazon Dot or something for probably less than that. But the price is looking good. It does look a little bit pokey. And I think that the real challenge is going to be putting together something that can compete with a Amazon device or a Google device when it isn't right in front of you on the desktop, like when it's on the kitchen counter, I don't know, 10 metres away or something. That's the challenge and that's the the cleverness that Amazon and Google have solved. I think that it can be done and I'm sure that there are pie hats which already have these far-field microphones and you know all this clever stuff. I'm sure they can do it. I read some articles talking about the relative failures for Amazon's device And it's all around the fact that people don't use it for buying stuff. They use it for a couple of things. One of those is setting a reminder. One of them is turning devices on and off. And uh, one of them is playing music. That seems like a very tractable problem for someone like Home Assistant to solve. And when we talked about them getting into voice uh, a few months back, we said at that point that the hardware was going to be the challenge. It's come to be available a lot quicker than I thought it would do, even in its early form. I think give it another few months, some people who are going to be designing new boards and um, microphone arrays and all of that jazz, and I think that by the end of the year we will see a piece of hardware which does 99% of what people want it to do based on fully open source hardware and software. So this is pretty cool. I think When we first talked about this, I wasn't convinced. I'm a little bit more convinced now. I think this could replace all of my devices. I think the key point there is that it will probably do 99% of what people actually do. Mm. It won't do 99% of what is possible with the proprietary solutions, but no one's using that stuff anyway. If all you want to do is turn your lights on and off and set reminders and stuff, as you said, then maybe it doesn't need to be that complicated. Yeah, totally agree. I think um, the the opportunity for people who are into Home Assistant and associated technologies 
is finding that 0.5% of utility which is not in there and then building it. And that will be a bit of fun. And we will see weird and wonderful add-ons come along that will fit a few of those niche requirements. But yeah, I think the bulk of it is going to be easy to do. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. All right, well, we're running out of time, and we've got three possibilities for the rest of the show. Do we want to either shit on Mozilla, as usual, <laughs> shit on Ubuntu, or maybe not, we'll have to see on that one, or talk about someone's vision of what Linux on the desktop is in 2023. We need a wheel of misfortune. We need some interactive way that listeners can tell us. They need to like send us psychic vibes from the future. Press the red button on your controller now. <laughs> yeah. Stick your Apple VR headset on <laughs> and uh, you'll see us in front of you. All right. Well, very, very briefly, Mozilla hey. advertised that... Firefox VPN thing in a pop-up that you had to dismiss before you could do anything. And uh, what? just what are they doing? Just come on, don't do stuff like this. They, they reversed course pretty quickly, but there was a backlash and just come on. We don't need to say much more about that. And uh, I also had Pocket's new features make it even easier to discover and organize content. Still not open source though, is it, Mozilla? <laughs> <laughs> right, so that's us shitting on Mozilla. I don't think we need to go any further on that. Linux on the desktop in 2023. This is a post from Marco Newman on his blog, and he talks about getting a new laptop and breaks down where he thinks the Linux desktop is in 2023. And he's very forward thinking. <laughs> Opinionated, I would say. Yeah, but it's, you know, he's, he talks about Flatpak being how you get applications. He talks about Wayland being more or less how you should do display management. Yeah, maybe, eventually. I mean, I'm using it for the last three days, but it's not perfect yet. No, and he, he makes that point, to be fair. But, I mean, he recommends new users use Fedora. I think that's a whopping great load of rubbish, that is. But, you know, he he's very much against the likes of Debian for being old and stale. Well, well that sort of flies in the face of the whole getting your apps in flat packs. shouldn't matter what your OS is at that point. Old and stale should be perfect. So... I agree with some stuff, and I, I learned some stuff about some of the new bits that I would just never be bothered looking up. And he has a great, concise list of stuff, so, I mean, I'll, I'll give him that. Absolutely brilliant. I think if I were to be building a new laptop from scratch and not just porting my Ubuntu install from machine to a machine, and I wanted to try something that wasn't Ubuntu, I think this is a very useful, very complete list of all of the things that you need to think about and some very sensible answers to those questions for example it talks about using fprint 
for fingerprint authentication. Now, this is something that has worked on and off in Ubuntu over the years, but got to the point where it was so hit and miss that I think most people gave up with it. I can't even remember if it's there by default anymore or not. Maybe it is. But there are links there that suggest that it does just work on some machines, which is more than I would have expected. And there's another mention of USB Guard, which is a very useful application that will let you have trusted USB devices so people can't come along to your unattended laptop that may be a lock screen and plug a USB drive in and, and you know have it auto-mount and do all things like that. So this is some a really nice list of up-to-date ways of doing things, as you say, Joe, and I think it's a really useful checklist. If you're building a machine today and you happen to be building it on Arch, for example, this is a, a handy checklist to review. And the fact that you work with Marco is totally irrelevant. Totally irrelevant. Does he bully you? <laughs> He'll just give me the money and I will mention his next blog post. <laughs> right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week with some discoveries and who knows what. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>